Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we're very pleased to have Ann Hyde. Ann is a professor of history and editor-in-chief of the Western Historical Quarterly. Her most recent book, entitled Born of Lakes and Plains, Mixed Descent Peoples and the Making of the American West, was published by Norton in 2022 and was a finalist for the Perlitzer Prize. One of her earlier books, which we'll also discuss today, Empires, Nations, and Families, A New History of the North American West, 1800-1860, and that was out in 2012, and that won the Bancroft Prize. So, Anne, thanks for joining us today on History 605. You're very welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we're going to do something a little unique today for the podcast to talk about two books, but I think they overlap quite a bit and discussing some of the similar themes and many of the people who define the nature of how Europeans lived and worked and raised families in America with the tribes that they interacted with. Uh, the timelines are generally 1600s to 1850s or right up into the Civil War. It takes a step back a little bit to during these two centuries, particularly in Canada and the Great Lakes region. Uh, the cultures created what uh, is often referred to as a middle ground and something that was not one or the other, but something that became new and unique. This is not necessarily a new concept, but but in your books, put particular individuals into this and to tell all the stories of these unique individuals and these unique families that I thought was very, these personal stories are very, uh, they make it all very real. They're not lines on a map of where the Louisiana Purchase is now, you have to deal with people like the Chateau family and so forth. So it really uh, brings it into an immediate setting that I thought was very real. So congratulations on the books and thanks for writing them. Thank you. As I was alluding to there about the Louisiana Purchase, we, can, we often kind of think of Napoleon sells the land in the United States in 1803, 1804, Lewis and Clark, set out on their expedition. And then we kind of race forward to say the early 20th century. And all of that change in institution building is kind of done. And what your book tells us is, or the two books you uh, wrote tells us is those institutions uh, were changed, adapted by choices by individual people. I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the families that you chose to tell the story. In particular, well, why don't we start off with the Chateaus? Because I'm speaking to you today from Pierre, South Dakota, um, named after one of those chateaus. And I uh, wonder if you could kind of give us a sense of what the Chateau family was about and uh, why they wound up in central 
South Dakota. What is today Central South Dakota? Or one of them did anyway. Part of the answer is having a clear sense of how much individual families mattered in the fur trade. So because the fur trade was about individual people making relationships with other individual people, usually over racial lines. So the Chouteau family is just one of a whole bunch of families in St. Louis who are doing the same thing. And they've discovered and they've, they've got licenses from the French government and then the Spanish government. And then they basically do the same thing once the United States is involved. But their, their license enables them to go trade with indigenous people and to set up forts out you know, in the hinterland. But they're doing it you know, with permission from native people. So this is a joint enterprise the Osage or the Wichita's or the Pawnees or, you know, whoever it is that they want to trade with at that point, make a deal with personally with the Chouteau's. They say, you can, you can move out here, but you need to send your trader and your trader needs to indicate that they're serious about this by making personal relationships within the tribe. So marriage, you know, sometimes there's adoption, but really it's marriage and most of the Chouteau men are married to French women in St. Louis, and they have, you know, one, two, three, four wives out of these forts. And this is really common. It's, it's mm-hmm. what indigenous men are doing, and it's what French men who want to be involved in the fur trade are doing. So that pattern's really common. How much do you know about what their personal sentiments were? I mean, are they in love with these uh, women, or are they are they just being pointed to at, at the meeting by the chief and say this is this is the woman you should marry, or how's that really play out? That's a really good question. I would and I would love to know the answer to that because yeah. we have such a you know romantic notion of how marriage works, mm-hmm. and in this case, marriage is very much a diplomatic exercise. So it's it's about business and it's about building alliances between native groups and various European groups. So, you know, that's about safety for tribal people. So they, they feel safer if they've got this set of alliances built, and that involves these marriages. But, you know, people are humans, and, you know, you, you live together, you cook together, you sleep together, you fight over what to do about the kids together, you have effective relationships. You can't really see that in business records exactly but you in a way you can so you can see that this you know a trader would buy something for his wife he'd buy a bunch of silk he'd buy hair ribbons for his daughter he'd you know buy shoes for his son you know sort of more on the indigenous side you know there'd be a you know beautiful beautiful white ocelot fur that might get made into, you know, something for a new baby. So there is some material stuff out there that suggests effective relationships. I would love to know with my individual families if they loved each other and if when they got mad at each other and all those kinds of questions, but I don't really. What are the details that you can share about the Chateau family then as a business enterprise and then how they wanted to bring about the fur trade uh, and maybe a bit about the fur trade as a global industry. I don't know that people would appreciate the demand for beaver pelts and so forth in London and Paris and how fashionable it was. And while in cold weather climates, 
Um, it has a utility that the, those who are living here first uh, have always appreciated. So there's there's kind of different values placed on those pelts and different prices and so forth. Is there kind of a GDP that one can point to for the fur trade, say, in 1700 or 1750? If you look at the 18th century as a whole and you look at North American experts, the fur trade, hands down, is the biggest industry, exporting industry in North America. So, you know, there are a few minutes where that gets shifted up with gold, but really, it's it's the fur trade, and for all the reasons you mentioned, it is about. And we, you know, we think of the fur trade as this funky, quaint thing with you know Davy Crockett hats right. and this, you know, um, you know something left over in the nineteenth century. But it's it is it is about high fashion, but it's also about warmth. So a beaver hat is a super. It's an expensive item that all European men wanted to have, and it's. At, is at a moment where, for the first time, fur isn't regulated. So it isn't something that only kings or queens can wear. So in the end of the 17th century, into the 18th century, this becomes a mark of this new modern world that you know people who have a little bit of means can afford this beaver hat. So if you think about something like you know Abe Lincoln or mm-hmm. Ben Franklin wore. That would be the kind of beaver hat, but it's it's a mark of, you know, success. But it's not regulated anymore, so it's very popular. So Russians want them, and the Chinese want them, and British men want them. So it's you know it's really everywhere. Right, it is a global trade. I mean, in many ways, it'd be like like technology today. It's, it's that kind of value and uh, widely accessible. As the industrial revolution is kicking off in Europe, and people have more, more spendable cash and so forth. I can say a little bit more about the scale of the thing, because sure. economists have looked at this really carefully. And one of the things about the fur trade is so much of it is done illegally that you can't track it. So okay. we can look at the Hudson's Bay Company, which is an enormous, well-organized British company, and. Two million furs come out of two forts in the 18th century. So we we sort of we know that, but we also know that the other company that's the sort of French sneaky company that doesn't you know very successfully gather taxes and all that sort of stuff. It's not as big as the Hudson's Bay Company initially, but it's a big enterprise too. But it, but that's kind of lost in the past because it was all done illegally. It's the scale of yeah harvesting those beavers, and uh, as you as you write about the, the business proposition that coming from the Hudson Bay Company, the explorer comes down in the Great Lakes. They are the, from the French perspective, they're often making deals not to hunt themselves, but to trade European goods for these furs um, at places like Sault Ste. Marie or uh, around the Great Lakes. And the natives there are happy to, often happy to oblige. And then, of course, this all sends ripples through the uh, tribal relations that you very helpfully point out. I think with with the, the the Hudson Company, quite by accident, lands where they land in what is today Canada, and makes it agreements with the tri- first tribe they meet, and then that makes them enemies of the other tribes that uh, they meet. Only by 
trade winds do they wind up being friends with who they are friends with it seems the the contingency and the happenstance of that's quite remarkable well and i think another useful way to think about that is anytime europeans arrived whether it's in you know 1608 with henry hudson or whether it's 200 years later with you know lewis and clark they're dropped into a fully operating system and they really don't know what's going on and who's doing what. And if they're smart, they sort of take a breath and look around and see what's going on. I mean, you know, you can read, even if you don't speak a native language, you can read body language, you can, you know, figure out who the leader is. And some traders and explorers are really good at that and some aren't. That's really a constant that there's ongoing systems, there are trade deals set up, mm-hmm. there's systems about you know how hunting works in particular areas. So the explorer's job is to hook into that and to figure out who they should connect with. How do the Chateau family then kind of, as you say, hook into that? What's their process by which they do that? And well, they've been they've been in St. Louis long enough at that point, you know, a, a generation or two, to understand that the Osage are the middlemen in this whole century, central Missouri region. So they move out, I guess, you know, to where we think about, you know, Kansas City or mm-hmm. you know other areas along the Mississippi River, and they make individual arrangements with these native leaders, and and the deal is. You'll move here, you'll bring a certain amount of trade goods, and the native leader will make the individual deals with local native men. And the only reason local native men will do this is because they feel like they're going to trust the trader, which gets back to the marriage question. So they're not going to trust the trader. They're not going to agree to hunt or trade with him unless there's a marriage involved. Okay, so that's kind of like a a license to to trade is to yeah, be married. Yeah. yeah. Well, th- we've done several podcasts about the Lakota and Dakota, and certainly a theme that is running through most of those uh, books and the research is the importance of kinship and all of that. So uh, by the time I uh, picked up your book, I was uh, that was a well-worn path uh, to find the importance of kinship. But what was probably the, one of the more complicated well, one of the more complicated and fraught marriages you ran across. I mean, it seems you talked about they might have a, a French wife back in St. Louis, and then they've got three wives out somewhere in the Rockies or in the Great Plains. And uh, what does the wife back in St. Louis think of all this? Or does she know? I think everybody knows. That's the way the game is played. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this is the way the system operates. I mean, a good a good example of this would be Manuel Lisa, who is a you know famous mm. St. Louisan, who ends up up the Missouri, and he's got mm-hmm. a. This operates in several different directions. He has he's Spanish, and he yeah. realizes there's no possible way he's going to do business in St. Louis without a French wife. So he marries into the Chouteau family, and then he goes up the river and has two Omaha wives. And there is some some hurt feelings when he brings his St. Louis wife up to where Council Bluffs is along the river, and they spend the winter up there. And again, I you know you you hear some rumors about things, and you know some jokes on the native side about the angry wife. 
Well, it brings to mind the question, where does the business end and the marriage begin? It sounds like there's no separation between. I think for most 19th century people, that's true. Marriage is always yeah. a partnership and you know some kind of business enterprise. Whether you're going to make shoes together or farm together, it's a similar kind of partnership. In The Born of Lakes and Plains, I was really struck with this quote. Uh, George Bent began the war, the Civil War, as a white man but ended it as an Indian. What are the choices that he's caught in, and why does, why does he make these decisions? It seems like certainly by the Civil War, institutions are beginning to work their way into daily choices and lives of people in ways that are forcing different decisions on people like this man, George Bent. And well, George Bent is one of five children of William Bent, who was a yeah. famous St. Louis trader who moves out to the Southern Plains. And William Bent makes a deal with the Cheyenne and Arapaho nations to set up a fur trading fort along the Arkansas River. And then, you know, Bent spends his life there. He marries three different indigenous women. His first wife is the daughter of an important Southern Cheyenne leader. Um, and then he's married to her two sisters, which again is the common pattern. So he's, he's settled in there. So George is, you know, the, the child of that family. So this is, this is this moment where everything's going well. They're sort of operating on both sides of the border. It's the 1830s. Where's Mexico? Where's the U.S.? No one cares because there's so much money being made in the fur trade. And the Bent family is kind of an, one of the anchors of that whole system out there. So that's the world George grows up in. So he spends his summers in a Cheyenne teepee, as does William Bent. And then he spends winters in Bent's Fort you know, being doing what other kids are doing. So he's learning to read, he's learning to write. Um, So really is this, you know, mixed life. And they're a very elite family. So this is not like the average family. And he and his brother, William, are sent to boarding school in St. Louis in the late 1850s. And they don't like it much. It's a very uptight Jesuit boarding school, and they don't fit in that well. They don't actually have Latin background. They're literate in French. You know, they're many things they're good at, but they they have a tough time at the boarding school. So when the Civil War breaks out, George has been sitting with all the wealthy planters' sons who are in school in the Jesuit school in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So he joins the Confederate Army, and his his brother looks at that and says, "Huh, I'm not doing that. I'm going back home to the fort, and I'm gonna stick with my family." So they make they make very different choices about what to do, and it's at this moment where ideas about what someone looks like comes to matter more. So George mm-hmm. goes off to the war. Like many young men, there's a little debate about what actually happened. He, you know, participates in several really, really difficult Confederate losses, and he somehow wanders away from his unit. And this is this is from you know his own records. You know, somehow wandered away from his unit, and he gets captured by the Union Army and sent back to prison in St. Louis. He's you know he's a lucky young man. So he knows people in St. Louis. His father gets word that he's there and he sends his 
older brother, Robert, to get him out of jail. And the St. Louis, you know, Confederates say, okay, we're going to let you out, but you need, you need to go back to your Indian world and not come back anymore. And at that point, he really does make a choice. So he goes back to live with his Cheyenne relatives. Um, he's very active in some of the most, you know, grisly parts of what happens after the Sand Creek Massacre. He's, got, he's not got the option anymore to sort of walk on the white side of the line. And I don't know what he would have chosen. Well, it's just that it, the choices are narrowing on people because of, yeah. the, of the strengthening, what I guess I'll I just refer to this phrase, the strengthening institutions as state governments are set up, as communities are, well, formal, European-style, East Coast communities are spreading in, churches are being built, saloons are being built. All, all the, the virtues and the vice um, are coming into, the, into these towns. Uh, laws are being passed. Laws are being enforced. And some of those laws aren't too friendly to these style of marriages, right? I think it has to do with the army, too. So in mm. the middle of the 1860s, the U.S. Army takes over Bent's Fort. And part of their concern is the Bent's have been selling guns and alcohol for 35 years. And that's worrisome in the middle of a war. And if you think about what's happening on the Confederate side as they're marching to take New Mexico. So there's, there's concern about, you know, the potential of not only weapons being out there, but, you know, disloyal Americans. You mentioned toward the end, three different gentlemen, and they're kind of a part of a theme about, uh, to quote uh, one of your sentences, a powerful racial science now discredited attempted to make race visible. Uh, I thought that was a wonderful way to uh, make the point. And this kind of a uh, system or process that arises out of the out of the scientific revolution, we have to categorize everything. You know, we have to understand everything down to put it in the neat categories. Has now come to this point where Western science is making is is inventing race as a concept, right? And then now it's transitioning over to the legal code that you mentioned. Um, whereas 150 years before, people weren't, in this neck of the woods, people weren't too concerned about that. Uh, you talk about Henry Schoolcraft. I thought he was a particularly fascinating person. He he's, comes and goes inside of, uh, throughout the book, uh, Born of Lakes and Plains. Who, if you could give us just a bit of an introduction to Henry Schoolcraft and what does he do and what animates him and and how does he try to be a man of science and uh, in this in this situation? So you're you're going to force me to be sympathetic to to um, Henry Schoolcraft, which oh. I'm not in the book. Um, <laughs> no, but, you're not. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But but he's he's you know to to give him full credit. So he's he comes out of this you know moment in the early 19th century. So he's born. I don't know, you know, in the 1790s. Mm-hmm. And so by the time he's, he's a young man, there's a giant, giant depression. So his family's gone out of business. He's the, his dad has lost the glass factory. He's from upstate New York. He's well-educated and he just can't get his, you know, foot in the door in business. So like all young men who, you know, try to make their fortune, he heads West and he ends up, trying to convince people to invest in lead mines in Missouri. And then he kind of 
invents himself as a scientist at saying, you know, here's this report I wrote about lead mines in Missouri. And he sells that to the Secretary of War, who's, yeah. you know, Lewis Cass. Yeah. yeah, and he, he gets appointed as sort of this, you know, low-level bureaucrat um, in Michigan. So he, he's never been to Michigan. He's never been around Native people. So now he's like the, you know, vice assistant principal of this, you know, um, trading post. And this is very common. So if, if you're a young man in the early 19th century and you want any kind of stable job, you hope you can get government work. And the Indian service is the biggest hirer, you know, mm. throughout the 19th century. So the, like the fur trade, the infrastructure of the Indian office is just, you know, sort of enormous, which we, again, you know, forget about. But it's, it's totally related to the fur trade. So his job is to go up there and make deals with, in this case, Ojibwa people uh, about the fur trade. So, you know, his job is to make the fur trade run smoothly. He ends up getting a room in the house of a very wealthy, powerful local guy named John Johnson, who's an Irish emigre who's married to a very elite Ojibwa woman. So again, example of one of these fur trade families. John Johnson comes over from Ireland and immediately realizes that if he wants to make money in the fur trade, this is a way to go. So he marries into this family and it's a very well-connected French and Ojibwa family. So they have many generations of this intermarriage. So this is where Henry Schoolcraft ends up in their household. They have eight children and he, and, and I'm not even going to use the word falls in love with. He meets um, Henry Schoolcraft's middle daughter, who is well-educated, you know, both as an Ojibwa woman, um, but also as a French and English-speaking young woman. And they make a life together. And they have a kind of fraught relationship. Well, I noticed it. At one point, she's writing letters to him, and she's correcting his Latin or something. She's and that just infuriates. <laughs> he, yeah. he can't yeah. take it. He can't take it. But yeah. that's such a that's such a funky nineteenth century story because they're living in the same house together, but they're writing letters to each other because you know it wouldn't be polite to talk about this stuff in the the dining room or by the fire. Face to face, you have to write yeah. write down letters. But but having records like the schoolcrafts is unbelievably rare. So, well, that's true. As a historian, then those, even though they're living in the same house, they're writing letters to one another. Yeah. If you can get hold of those, then who else is it that that uh, there's these three scientists? Uh, Schoolcraft, or I guess that they hope to be scientists. Uh, Schoolcraft, uh, Grinnell. What is it that they're uh, promoting that is foreign to their Ojibwe ways or how would you yeah. understand that? So yeah. Schoolcraft is a really good example. So he's born, as I said, in the 1790s, and he publishes his first books about this in 17, sorry, 1830s. Uh, and so the, everyone's trying to figure out what's going to happen with indigenous people. Is this a race that's going to last? So the science is all about how to understand this race that 
still looks different from white people? Why aren't they instantly learning English? So, you know, how do we understand these people? And, and Henry Schoolcraft is at the heart of that. He's married to a Native woman. He decides that his, his way into all this is to become a linguist of Native languages. So using all of his family as translators, he publishes all these books about how indigenous languages operate. And it's a salvage project. So his notion is all these native people, including his wife and children, um, are destined to disappear. So Hmm. his job as a scientist is to save these languages. How does he go about that then as as an agent of the U.S. government? Well, he's got you know, all kinds of tools. He can interview people. He can hire people as translators. So, you know, coming up with Ojibwa and English dictionaries uh, is important for his job. So he uses his family connections to do that. So now the industry is not the fur trade. It's salvaging the culture that is they're they're afraid is going away. That's the... Well, because what's, what's shifted is... It's no longer the fur trade. It's making trees to get people's land. So, yeah. so, so these all things, these things go together. So the reason mm-hmm. native people are disappearing, the reason that's natural, which of course it's not, is yeah. now because the U.S. doesn't want or need a fur trade. What they really want is indigenous land um, as part of the next step in expansion. Mm-hmm. So Henry's job literally changes under his feet. And he's negotiating that along with the, these other, you say, three scholars, James Mooney and George Bernard Grinnell and George Hyde. They all fail to see the history that George laid out, and, but they become very influential. Uh, I think Mooney uh, works for the Smithsonian. This is, this is, say, 80 years later. Yeah. So, you know, Henry Schoolcraft is in that first generation of people who are trying to figure this out. Um, this gets much more sort of highfalutin science so that you have to have a PhD, you have to have a research program, um, and you have to, you know, move out there and study Native people. So someone like George Grinnell, who is a famous sportsman first, and then he his, he sort of gets this life's passion to figure out what's going to happen to Native people. So we, again, it's a salvage project. How yeah. do we preserve hunting people? How do we preserve, you know, this wonderful culture that was out there on the plains? So he's out there in the 1880s and 1890s trying to, you know, gather up the last bits of information about those tribes. So it's the same project that Henry Schoolcraft was involved in, but it's a a slightly different one. In this case, it's our friend George Bent again, who, Uh you know, he used to be sometimes William Bent's son as a white man, and now he's an informer working for people like Grinnell. So he gets hired by Grinnell as a translator so he can uh, mediate between tribal elders to get, you know, official stuff about what how hunting works. So, and, you know, he's made quite a shift. Uh, George Bent has, you mean? Yes. I guess that's marking historical change, though, right? He's he. In a 60, 80, 90 year long life and with so much change going on and such profound cultural shifts happening, you might often economically feel like you're 
the earth is crumbling beneath your feet and you need to jump to some other way to do it, way to make a living. And that's um, and that's one of the, I don't know, not exactly upbeat parts of the story, but you know, seeing how people use all these family connection skills, networks to you know survive, come up with different techniques. The the Cheyenne move from bison to being excellent cattle drovers, you know, so people figure out new ways to live. I wanted to dive into. Uh, a phrase that's often uh, freighted with a great deal of meaning, and it's in our 13th Amendment, uh, this phrase, Indians not taxed. That sounds like a deal, right? <laughs> this group of people is not taxed. But what is, uh, you talk about the debate in the Senate, the debate in the uh, ratifying, drafting and ratifying the 13th Amendment, and Senator Trumbull from Illinois is one of the authors. Uh, what is What is he trying to do with sticking that phrase in there, Indians not taxed? Well, if you think about the 1870s moment, civil war's over, but you know how to think about a new world where there's going to be much more open citizenship. You know, what do we do post civil war about who can vote, who can be a citizen, who can own land? You know, all those questions, and Native people are very much part of the debate at that particular moment, partly because there's a Plains Indian War. So, mm -hmm. you know, as these debates are unfolding about whether black men should be able to vote and black people in general should be part of the body politic, the U.S. Army is fighting this incredibly expensive, very difficult Indian War. So senators, that's that's kind of what's at the heart of this. If If we allow black men to vote, does that mean... Native people are going to be able to vote. How, you know, how do we think about this? So, so Indians not taxed is a phrase that essentially means wild Indians. So mm. these are Indians who haven't become citizens. They aren't paying property taxes. They're living on reservations, or they haven't been, you know, coerced yeah. to live various places. So that's where that comes from. Well, thanks for explaining that because I think. I've sometimes used the phrase, they've not walked through the magical line to kind of be a part of Western culture. They're, they're maintaining their tribal affiliation, their tribal culture, their tribal ways. And as a tribe, they have rights uh, that has been at least recognized since George Washington, who wanted to treat right. tribes as foreign nations with which the United States makes treaties. And that's kind of why they why they wouldn't be voting is because, well, they're a foreign nation. So foreign nations don't vote in domestic politics, participate in elections that way. And of course, when we see taxes today, we think of income taxes, but there were no income taxes at the time this was written. And so it's, it's a very different tax regime based on land, which is, again, goes back to that understanding of how the different cultures used land in different ways and thought of it in different ways. I mean, the, the, real, the real pressure comes with the whole process of taking reservations and dividing them up into individual hunks of land. So that's the moment where all those absolute guarantees about who's sovereign, what a nation is, what a tribe is, all that comes under pressure and has to be renegotiated. That's a nice segue into my one of my next questions or points I wanted to talk about is the Dawes Act is the 
is the federal law that really begins to push that, making declarations about excess land and so forth. If so many people get, ought to be able to, in the United States government's view, subsist on so much land, you have more acres than you have land, or have more acres in that formula than you need because of the population. Therefore, the rest of this land on your reservation is now going to be sold to the highest or put into the Homestead Act or sold off unless you opt to take it, which many, some of them do, some of the natives do. But uh, it becomes, again, it's this kind of massive cultural misunderstanding, I think, that continues to this day about central things that are, well, part and parcel of the Declaration of Independence of these truths that are self-evident that we are created equal at the individual level versus created as a tribe and do things for the benefit of the tribe, which then sets up different patterns for marriage and a whole bunch of different things. I, I think that's what made the uh, both your books so useful is these personal stories where people are trying to balance those two different conceptions of of uh, these different cultures, different conceptions about a wide variety of things based on these different cultures. Well, and I think if you start thinking about how race is becoming understood in different ways too, right at that yeah. moment. So people in the U.S. are struggling to think about, you know, what does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be Hispanic? It's like, so, and, and Native people are much more complicated because of that tribal relationship. So, you know, how do we think through all this? So one, if you think about the process of how the Dawes Act gets rolled out is just, and again, if you look at it in a, from a family perspective, it's, just, it's absolutely mind blowing and fascinating. So the, the Dawes, you know, roles people come and they look at families. And these are, these are people that, you know, I haven't seen photographs of, but, you know, I've sort of watched them over many generations. So they show up and they categorize people. The mother might be native and the father might be white. That's clear. And then in one family, they label all the children in different ways. So sometimes they'll say, you know, full Indian, or they'll say half breed or seven eighths or three quarters. So in one family, all the kids are labeled differently. And that makes a difference in how allotment works. And it could be completely inaccurate, even according to their understanding of the time, if the bureaucrat has it wrong. Yeah. You know, yeah. who, you know, I who mean, is this person? Why, you know, it's, and, and different people are making completely different judgments, but, but right. that's, that's what tribal nations are stuck with now. Right. In terms of making decisions about who's who is this sort of racist moment in the late 19th century that created all this. Well, and it's ironic, too. It's it's often I've had uh, a few folks come on and talk about the missionary movements and the different fundraising and so forth that go on to raise money for missionaries in the Great Plains and with the tribes and the schools that they set up here and the hospitals and all the work they do and so forth. But yet. Uh, they also have an infamous side with sending kids off to schools, such as the Jesuit school that you mentioned in St. Louis or uh, Carlisle, which you discussed in your books. This moment about how uh, the, the United States and larger Western civilization is defining race is not necessarily based on anything out of uh, a missionary theology. It's coming from the kind of progressive notions about science. 
Right. That that we can we can tell we can look at someone. There's a science we can right. we can determine in their blood right. some you know quantum of not white blood. So it's almost ironic that you could take a man like Augustine from the third fourth century and Sitting Bull, and they would have similar conceptions about race, <laughs> more similar than we would we might think that uh, give them credit for based on their very different cultures and so forth. That's astonishing. The way people forever figured out who's who is to ask questions. Who are you? Who are your family? Where are you from? Mm-hmm. Who are your people? What did they do there? And there's a whole litany of questions you would ask to figure out whether somebody was trustworthy. Because so, looking at them wasn't going to tell you anything. So you right. needed to you know, figure out their background. And now right. we, we have instant decisions made you know, based on faces. Yes. We struggle with that all the time, I think. And I think we're worse off for it. I think we might be better to go back to asking questions like good historians do. And is there any other story you'd like to, you'd like to mention any other person that you think uh, you'd like to pull out of the pages here and, and chat about? One of my favorite families is the, Drips family mm-hmm. it comes from the sort of central Missouri River. So, you know, basically in Nebraska. And again, you know, kind of a fur trade elite family. But what you see there is what happens after the fur trade dad dies. And the, and the question there really is how these women figure out a way to get through this difficult era. So it's it's the Civil War. Things are just a mess in Kansas. So after the fur trade father dies in the late 1850s, they all move to the reservation just over the border in Nebraska because they feel like that's going to be safer for the kids. So it's this is three women kind of co-parenting. And that's a surprise. You know, mm-hmm. how, you know, how do they manage this? They actually use, they get married again. They marry some white settlers um, to make sure that their children are protected. So they're, they're very strategic about all this. Yeah. And they, you know, kind of work through the whole allotment era. That family is the first one to get sent into what becomes Indian territory in Oklahoma to suss out land for the Oto tribe. So, you know, this family, which, you know, started in the 1830s, a hundred years later, is still kind of using these family networks to, you know, figure out how to operate. So we go from fur trade to governmental use of land to uh, civil war. And certainly, well, we kind of made, uh, we sped through it, but the royal notions of aristocracy in France and Britain certainly have a play in how this is set up as well and the choices they make. So. I must say, too, I lived in the St. Louis area f- for a few years, and the name uh, Bent, Laclede, Chateau, lots of stuff still uh, hang around on signs in that area for a wide variety of uh, highways or buildings or uh, Laclede Landing, I think it's called, uh, down there by the river. It's a nice district. So they, they left their name, but it's good to read a book and find out about their personal lives uh, such as we can uh, through your work. and to see how they made their way in the world as, as this, these great cultural changes are happening around them.
So thanks for coming on History 605 and walking us through it. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.